For decades, his works of horror, suspense, science fiction, and fantasy have terrified and delighted audiences around the world. The exceptional Stephen King. Mr. Stephen King. Stephen King. Stephen King. Mr. Stephen King. We begin with Stephen King. Stephen King. The first emotion in both humor and horror is this sort of childish delight. Hi, Georgie. I remember one thing. Fiction is a lie, but good fiction is the truth inside the lie. Hey there, constant listener. You're about to hear an interview released exclusively to our Stephen Kingdom Patreon supporters. Until now. I had a chance to speak with Andrea Subasati, the editor of Rue Morgue, the world's number one horror magazine, and co-host of the Faculty of Horror podcast. So if you ever want to deepen your knowledge of horror, you can look no further than Miss Subasati. And if you enjoy the interview, there's a whole treasure trove of exclusive content like it over at the Stephen Kingdom Patreon, including deleted and extended material, early access to episodes, and your name in the credits. And don't forget to check out the Stephen Kingdom on YouTube, where you can find even more King-centric stuff you won't find here. And now, without further ado, my interview with Andrea Subasati. I just wanted to start talking with you about what your first memory is of Stephen King in your life. My entry point to horror in large was young adult literature, R.L. Stein. You know, I was a little bit too old for Goosebumps, but Fear Street was right in my stuff. Mm. And then one day I saw at a garage sale this. Wow, that is one well-worn copy of It. I'm almost scared to touch it right now. It is being held together by tape and a whole lot of love. It's going to like turn to powder in a second. This was on sale for 50 cents and I devoured it. So that was my entry point. You know, at the time I was in elementary school still. And so they didn't have Stephen King in the school library. So I went to start getting Stephen King books at the public library. And I had to have a note from my mom to the librarian to say that my daughter can access restricted material. (laughs) Wow. Do they even do that anymore? I'm trying to think if. No idea. I think that might've been a figment of the eighties back when we're actually like concerned about what kids were reading because there wasn't the internet yet. Oh yeah, the satanic scares and all that right. stuff. Oh yeah, fun times. So you were already into horror when you saw it at the garage sale, right? Mm-hmm. So you kind of said, that looks like a scary book. That's for me. Oh yeah. And uh, at the time, the movie was also notorious. Like the miniseries had been on TV and it was way too scary to be on TV. And you would go to the video store and that like huge four cassette stack would like leer at you and tempt you and taunt you. And that scared the pants off me. And of course, I didn't understand everything that went on in the book. There's some weird metaphysical stuff going on there. There's a very controversial kitty orgy that I'm sure you will get to at some point in your show. But the mini series scared the pants off me. Tim Curry as Pennywise, like, I think that was the first time that I got that visceral thrill of complete terror, but also like just being totally captivated. And I can't stop thinking about it and I don't want to. It keeps me up at night and I'm okay with it. You know, it was really foundational to my horror fandom. I remember when it was on and catching glimpses of it when my parents were watching it. And I happened to wander in at all the wrong times when the clown was killing people. I don't even know what this is. This is terrifying. It definitely just kind of cast a shadow over everything. Like even if you didn't know what it was, there was that killer clown that just terrified us, even if we'd only seen like an image of Tim Curry. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think also because it was terrorizing children, we were inclined to think, oh, this is going to be like the Goonies. This is going to be like Stand By Me. This is going to be, you know, thrilling, but not too, too scary. And then no, it's terrifying. I remember making the connection later with Home Alone 2. Wait, that's the guy. The concierge is the guy who played the clown. What? <laughs> He's still terrorizing kids to this day. <laughs> yes, he is. So it was your first Stephen King. You know, you can read a lot of books by authors and then not be pulled into wanting to read more of their stuff. But I'm assuming you just moved on. You just wanted to read more and more Stephen King after that. Exactly. You kind of uh, you kind of devoured it. I remember reading, you know, like Stephen King's short fiction was amazing. I really enjoyed it. He had that fantasy novel. Do you remember his fantasy novel? Mm -hmm. Eyes of the Dragon? Yeah, I remember I read that. And that was, I think, the first time I'd seen the word like penis written in a book. And I was like, who? <laughs> and then from there, you know, I went from the books to the movie versions of the books. I read The Shining and I watched The Shining. I read Pet Cemetery and I watched Pet Cemetery. So yeah, I felt like it was really easy to just die in with Stephen King. There was so much media available at the time. Do you remember what it was like going to the public library? So you just read it and you wanted to read more and then, I don't know, turning the corner or whatever and seeing how many there were? Yes, I do remember that being an experience. I even remember aesthetically how sometimes there would be like a series where the covers would all kind of match and I'd, I'd want to read those first. <laughs> and I remember when the Dark Tower series was still coming out and it was like skinny little novellas, the library never had every part. And so I never started it because I knew that I wouldn't be able to finish it. And to this day, I still haven't read that one. It's a gaping hole in my Kingography. So then I was just curious what your emotional state was of, oh my God, there's so much more to read now of this same author. Like, was it overwhelming? Was it like, oh God, I'm never going to finish all his books or was it exciting? It was incredibly exciting. I feel like I trusted him right away to deliver the chills in some respect or another. You know, I was aware that horror incorporated, you know, zombies and aliens and werewolves and monsters and vampires and madness and possession. And Stephen King offered a take on all of that. And I was able to really relate to it. And it was only when I got older that, you know, I'm able to look back now and see some some flaws in his work to see some things that I didn't see before. But uh, I think I was just also able to relate to the really working class reality of his narratives and his characters. You know, like I didn't grow up in small town USA, but that was a lot more relatable to me than Castle Frankenstein, let's say, or like the teenagers of Fear Street, because I wasn't yet a teenager. So I found it very approachable. It definitely widened my vocabulary. And yeah, I just consumed it voraciously. So was it the horror that kept you coming back or was it more of the character stuff, the more complex stuff that you think maybe kept you coming back to Stephen King? I think it was the horror, the monsters and the action sequences that took place in settings and locales and scenarios that I could very easily imagine. I've never set foot in the sewer, but I've seen them and they're mm -hmm. scary. So how does that then carry you into making a profession out of horror? Obviously, a lot of people are Stephen King fans, but then they're accountants and doctors and lawyers and whatever else. But you've made a profession out of writing about horror, reading horror, podcasting about horror. Can you kind of take me through Stephen King's connection to that? 
Well, I went to school for sociology. I got my master's degree in sociology. And so, you know, I was really interested in cultural production and pop culture and stuff like that. And I didn't really steer it toward horror until zombies were experiencing kind of a renaissance with uh, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, 28 Days Later, that was happening in the, in the mid-aughts. And, you know, I was writing my thesis and I was writing papers and my profs were always saying, you know, you write like a writer, you know, you're not just an academic or a researcher, you've got a very strong voice. And I specifically attribute that to reading so much when I was a kid and specifically reading Stephen King. So I think in addition to fostering an interest in horror, reading voraciously just makes you a better writer. And it was the writing that I kept up with after I left school. And I think it's the writing that landed me here and having a background in Stephen King novels certainly didn't hurt. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Are you very familiar with his on writing the biography side of him at all? I'm assuming you starting are. to get into that, starting, to get, starting into to get into that. I think I was a little bit worried about peeking behind that curtain, especially since I know him to be very verbose. And, uh, you know, when you're in the mood and he is describing in detail every blade of grass in that field, that's great. <laughs> but when he's trying to tell you something and it's nonfiction, I don't really like a wordy guy, but I'm interested in it. I'm not super well read in it. The reason I was curious is because your work ethic sounds very similar to his in the sense of like, you're writing all the time. You're very versatile. He's kind of known as well for kind of dabbling in, you know, when eBooks were just becoming a thing, like he's going to write that and that kind of thing. So the, I guess, adventurous side of you seems similar to his in the sense that you're willing to try different avenues of your academia and creative output. That's interesting because it's very true that these are very different hats for writing. There's academia, there's what I do with faculty of horror, there's what I do in the magazine. He's a creative writer, but he is able to uh, switch hats and indeed like him when I'm really stumped. I think we have the same approach to writer's block, which is to say. <laughs> what, is, what, is, what, what do you got there? Coffee? This is or? a nice coffee, but it is oh, a yeah. beverage. But you're in Toronto, right? Yes. Okay. And you co-host a podcast. How do you typically approach that? Or is it just pure conversation or are you meticulously outlined? I'm curious about your writing podcasting process. I think our podcast, the Faculty of Horror podcast is more structured than most. However, that structure did emerge organically with the way myself and my co-host, Alexandra West, converse. We tend to start by introducing the topic and giving a plot synopsis of the movie in question. We'll then go into kind of our personal experience. What brought you to this film? What do you remember of the marketing? Which kind of like, it colors outside the lines, but it really does inform your own personal history to the material. And then we will provide an analysis analysis that we're kind of, you know, that's kind of gleaned from what's out there, but always drawing our own conclusions. And, you know, Stephen King comes up a bunch, especially like, you know, people love to ask us where we started in horror. And so Stephen King comes up there, but uh, certainly we've done uh, very in-depth episodes on themes of The Shining, Pet Cemetery, Carrie. These are timeless classics in horror now, and you can't get away from it. Yeah, yeah, Carrie, I think we're getting on to 50 years almost. I know the movie is 45 years old. It's just crazy. And that's also such a, like, not an urban legend, but it's almost reached that status that people like to remind us that, you know, Stephen King's first novel was Carrie and he threw it in the garbage. And no his way. wife was like, you know, maybe you should give this another look and look where he is today. So I think, you know, he's reached such legendary status in the genre that even little anecdotes like that are like baked into horror history. Never give up like Stephen King. And also just how he's so actively 
trying to dispel that he's responsible for it because I think a lot of people like to do the, yeah, your wife saved it, but you're the writer and like the wife is the one who like backed up the man. Every chance he gets, he's always talking about Tabitha, his wife, and how she made him what he is. Like he's kind of aimless without her and her support early on, like how impoverished they were when he was writing Carrie and all those short stories. So he's definitely an inspiration for not only on the creative side, but just if writers want to write and they don't know how, I mean, he pretty much was handed some of the worst circumstances you can to make it as a writer. He's a working class hero, just like uh, many of his protagonists. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know you mentioned that a little bit earlier about his setting a lot of his horror in modern day or just kind of more accessible settings. Can you speak to that? Like how that is a different kind of horror than say like the castles and swamps and things like that? Yeah, I just feel like it brings the terror, it it makes it a little bit more immediate. I definitely remember after reading it feeling uneasy about drains and sewers. And, you know, I'm not walking by a castle on my way home from school every day. I'm walking by an old house that perhaps contains a hobo who might do something to me, you know? A lot of those things scared me directly. And I didn't have trouble relating with his protagonist, his varied protagonist at all when I was a kid. Now that I'm older and I go back on some of his material, I'm like, nah, some of these guys aren't cool guys. Some of these guys, I don't really like the way they talk to women. I don't like the way Stephen King writes some women. And, you know, a lot of these things, I mean, they've grown with me. And the fact that I can come back to them and get something different every time just makes them that much more special. Can you think of any particular characters of his that maybe you feel are relatable or that you can, even if you say completely differ with them on a philosophical level that you still kind of, oh, he made me understand somebody that I wouldn't otherwise. I mean, particularly with the case of it, I feel like he writes children very well. And, Mm. you know, I have zero experience with hypochondria or indeed like Munchausen syndrome. Is that what happened to Eddie Kasprak? Basically, his mom wanted to keep him sick. I thought that was fascinating, fascinating. And I thought that was fascinating from his point of view. And then just reading back as an adult being like, whoa, this kid was so totally abused. I mean, even Beverly Marsh, I think, you know, I was kind of one of the guys growing up because I like video games and horror movies and, you know, uh, some of the penalties that come with being one of the guys, because you're never quite one of the guys. You're always going to be the girl. Yeah. I definitely related with uh, Sue Snell, in high school, I was a little bit popular and, you know, you've got those uh, those mixed feelings about the unpopular girls, the the combined fear and guilt and shame and irritation. I thought that stuff was written really well. Yeah. What are some characters that you feel are a little problematic that you wish he could maybe take another crack at? You know, I tried to reread Salem's Lot recently and I thought Ben Mears was insufferable. <laughs> Yeah, he's pretty thin, really. I it, Like that book always seems to me like he's more concerned about the town than a lot of the characters. I agree. I, I think he's dull. And so, you know, the fact yeah. that he saves the day and gets the girl, I'm kind of like, eh. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> really? Mark Petrie is pretty cool. Definitely got me interested in uh, those Aurora models. Those are still around, you know. No, I didn't. Oh, yeah. They cost hundreds of dollars, but they're cool as hell. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You mentioned that you were before Stephen King, you were into kind of the Fear Street and some of the YA stuff. Do you remember what drew you to horror in the first place? Or were you just always as a child, just drawn to scary stuff? You know, I think when you're a kid, what'll snag you is Halloween. 
what'll mm-hmm. snag you is when this, you know, black and orange palette is everywhere and you're actually uh, doing little units in school about this is what a vampire is and he's spooky, ooky, ooky. And even though it's very kiddie and safe because it's in the school setting, you either really glommed onto it or you didn't. And then from there, I think it was like scary stories to tell in the dark was in my school library and um, the images, the covers captivated me and the interior didn't disappoint. No, yeah, especially those illustrations. I think I remember they took them out of later editions. The Edward Gorey illustrations that made the book. They were too effective. Yeah, yeah. Were there specific kinds of horror or horror tropes or characters that you were drawn to at a young age? I think the only thing that I wasn't terribly attracted to would be aliens, stuff in space. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't very interested in the cryptozoology thing. Even now to this day, uh, doing the magazine, we used to have a cryptozoology column that Lyle Blackburn used to write, and he would write so passionately about this stuff and people. And I knew that it was an important part of horror and the horror community, but I just couldn't get on board. I did read a fantastic book recently that kind of got me on board. It was called Evolution by Max Brooks. Yeah, Devolution. Yeah, yeah. Loved it. Devolution. That's right. That's it. Mm -hmm. I thought that kind of put it in context that, yeah, these are kind of real life monsters. If you think about it, it's just, I don't know, that Patterson Gimlin footage doesn't do anything for me. Especially now with everybody having cell phones, like where's all the videos now? I mean, should not hey. have a ton of Sasquatch videos? I mean, everybody's got a phone. So can, can you tell me a little bit about your work at the Rue Morgue? Because you're executive editor as of what, 2017? Yeah, thereabouts. And it's been really interesting because magazine writing, like on the one hand, it's journalism, but on the other hand, it's it, it's very niche. It's very genre. And as you mentioned, it, it requires a very specific tone. I like the magazine to be rigorous, but at the same time, very conversational. And, you know, I take advantage of the fact that I know my audience and I can say that something is Cronenbergian and assume that anyone reading it knows exactly what I mean. And so that's a real blessing. You can, you can speak your mind without having to reference everything kind of the way you do in academia. However, I think a lot of people tend to think that making a horror magazine means I can just run whatever I want. And it's just, you know, if it were up to me, every single issue would have The Shining on the cover and I could talk about The Shining until the end of time. But the fact of the matter is as a bi-monthly publication, I do have to keep things fresh. And because we're print, I'm looking into the future and I have to really keep things timely. I feel like these days I get a lot of pitches about, you know, what horror means to me and the first time I saw this and why I still love Johnny Darko after all these years. But as great as that is and as important as that is, and it could go in a journal of sorts, it's just not appropriate for a magazine that has to kind of keep things new and keep things flowing all the time. So it's a challenge. It's a completely different kind of writing that I have to do, but I have really, really fantastic writers and I stay learning all the time between the magazine and the podcast. On the topic of Stephen King, do you find yourself having to kind of dial it back on covering him a little bit? Because like you said, The Shining could be in every issue. You could have a magazine just on Stephen King. Do you find yourself having to kind of show some restraint and not go overboard with Stephen King and give other writers and other works equal time? Believe it or not, Stephen King is my big white whale in terms of getting for the magazine. If I could interview Stephen King, I would love, 
love, love, love to do a Stephen King special edition. I haven't been able to make it happen. And I think that's largely a function of, you know, like you were saying, I need a huge, huge lead time and he needs an even bigger lead time. I think his interview request queue is like at least six months in advance. And I'm sure he would talk to me, but I'm not quite seeing that far into the future just yet. A lot of people do pitch retrospectives on Stephen King properties, which I do have to pick and choose if and how and when I run those because I'm so inundated with interest for stuff like that. Joe Hill's ongoing career has been really exciting to follow. And so sometimes we get to talk about him a little, like we did a cover story on Nosferatu when they were making the TV adaptation of that. And so for the cover, we took the Nosferatu car and we made it look like the poster image for Christine. Oh, cool. Yeah, I thought it was a cool little, I'm not sure everybody got it, but uh, <laughs> I thought it was a brilliant idea. That's so funny. Yeah, I just rewatched Creep Show a couple weeks ago and I'd forgotten he's in it. He's the little boy at the beginning. And so it's really fun to see like, oh, there's Joe Hill, you know, notable author as like little boy looks like Stephen King so much. Oh, like yes. Him. Well, hopefully one day you'll get him. I'm not he, giving up. He seems to be very giving in both time and money. And so hopefully one day. I think he tries hard to keep it real. Even just the fact that he continues to reside in Maine. He's like, this is mm-hmm. this is where I belong. I could live yeah. anywhere. I could do anything, but I'm choosing to be a person. And yeah. I like that yeah. about him. Well, Andrea, thanks for chatting with me today. Oh, it's no problem at all. Many thanks to Andrea Subasati, and be sure to check out Rue Morgue Magazine as well as the Faculty of Horror podcast. You can find The Stephen Kingdom, both the podcast and the YouTube series, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to help us keep both the podcast and the YouTube series going, consider supporting our Patreon, where you can get all sorts of exclusive content. The Stephen Kingdom is hosted and written by me, David McCracken, and is produced and mixed by Josh Reedford. Original music by Aaron Reedford. Long days and pleasant nights, constant listeners. Thank you.